When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. She has become one of our favorites. She is fantastic. She is Finesse Moreno-Rivera. She is a criminal psychologist and also a criminologist. Those are really big words. She's going to explain what those means to us in just a second. Great to see you again, my friend. How are you? Good. How are you, Andrew? Thank you so much for having me back. I feel like I'm becoming more of a regular on here. I want you to be a regular. You're really good at this stuff. She has worked everywhere um, in government, in social justice groups, in places that want criminal reform. Let's start right there, though. We've got let's you know, we're into the reelection cycle now. So let's just round it off a little bit. We're about halfway through the Biden presidency now. Where are we at on things like criminal justice and reform things? We did the marijuana thing. Give us kind of a scorecard here for the Biden administration. The first two years where we're at on things like criminal justice, criminal justice reform, social justice concerns, all these sorts of things. So when it comes to drug reform, specifically with the Biden administration, as everyone has known, um, he has always had that tough on crime viewpoint uh, within the criminal justice, especially when they're looking at drugs um, and has apologized on multiple occasions for the uh, slip up, which is actually not even the word that should be utilized for the discrepancy between crack cocaine um, and powder cocaine. However, there's not really been a lot of movement when it comes to looking at uh, drug reform. So going back and looking at the differences between trying to correct the discrepancy between power cocaine and crack cocaine, we haven't really seen a lot of movement on that legislation. And this is due in part to Senator Grassley, who is really looking forward um, to looking at decreasing the discrepancies from 18 to 1 instead of 100 to 1. So we're, we're definitely still... Um, reinforcing that idea that crack cocaine is not the same as powder cocaine. And that's still lingering um, in the Senate as of right now. And then more recently, Biden had passed pardons for um, those who have been, who are, who are serving time as of right now in federal prison for simple possession of marijuana. Now, although Biden does support the idea of not having um, individuals with these types of charges within the jail, he still does not agree with legalizing on the federal level marijuana. And after all, these pardons really didn't do much for those who are still in prison. Not one person was set free, just given the fact that it is for simple possession of marijuana. So as of right now, it looks as though there hasn't been a lot of movement when it comes to drug reform. And I think, again, that's because Biden is really sticking with his guns when it comes to being tough on crime, specifically being tough on drugs. Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. Let's let's dig into that a little bit, because if I'm going to criticize the president for being performative and buzzwordy, I need to lay out what is performative and buzzwordy, right? I'm good with the pardons. I'm okay with wiping people's records for simple possession charges, because that's that has economic impact, that has, you know, benefit impact to their families, that gets them back into society properly. I'm good with all that in theory. Where the criticism of that is, 
is what was its actual effect, right? So we like the policy, but what was its actual effect? By far, the majority of people that would be benefited from that is more at the state level than the federal level. That was one thing. Uh, federal pardons, of course, is a very small subsection of this. Like you said, nobody actually got out of prison for this, but they did. You know, this does affect the lives of the people involved. We are seeing some states take some movement to this area. Is there any value in the performative of it? It's like, well, the president did it, so some of these states can start doing it. We've already seen some movements in the states. A couple of states have gone much further than this. Is there value in that, or does this hinder it? What do you think going forward as far as it comes to the simple possession of marijuana, these types of things? That There's a lot of polling that people support it, but you still got to get it in the black and white law somewhere. Right. So you are right in that the, the pardons do help those who are already who already served their time, who are just looking to get, you know, a job, get back on their feet, support their families, you know, even have housing. But overall, Biden's push didn't really do anything because, you know, as you know, there are plenty of states who have already passed laws for legalization of marijuana. Um, And so simple possession, just you don't really see that on someone's record or sticking with them. So it was just, to me, it was more of a push to really gain traction with our younger voters, because he did pass that shortly before the midterm elections began. Um, and also, you know, given the fact that, you know, presidents have given pardons all the way back to Theodore Roosevelt. So this isn't anything new where presidents are, you know, issuing pardons specifically also when looking at um, with drug, drug possession or even even type of drug charge. So I just found that it was a really just low hanging fruit. Um, that he utilized in order to really, again, just gain some traction when it comes to uh, midterm elections. Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. You mentioned um, crack cocaine. Of course, that was the big buzzword when they did the 94 crime bill, another Joe Biden special. That was his signature thing for decades. Um, Now the thing is more about fentanyl. You were also writing about this. We'll link to your article on this in the counterpunch when you bring up there. People are really concerned about the fentanyl, and they should be. This is dangerous stuff. This is stuff even hardcore drug users, it's it's deadly. Um, it's a new challenge that we haven't really found, and now we're getting reports there's actually variants of this that, you know, even the, the anti-doping drugs aren't effective with this. This stuff really, really scares people. How do we legislate and regulate this fentanyl crisis right now so that we don't end up doing what we did with crack cocaine and cocaine for the last 40 years? where we have it on the books wrong, the terminology ain't right, the incarceration ends up becoming a problem with it. Do you see what I'm saying? Shouldn't we be proactive and learn the lessons from the 94 crime bill and the crack cocaine era of the 80s and put it towards this fentanyl thing and get a handle on this now so that we don't create a whole nother generation of drug enforcement mess? Yes, you're absolutely correct. But unfortunately, we are headed down the same road as of right now. Um you know, we have stuck with the rescheduling of fentanyl as Schedule One, which we all know um, means that the government has deemed it to be highly addictive, which fentanyl is. But this also means that there hasn't been found to be any medicinal um, advantages of being able to study this and see what can help. And going back to your point, um, when you were talking about Narcan, I think, Andrew, you had just mentioned that you know, some of these fentanyl-like substances have been found to be able to counteract overdoses for those who are, for example, using a benzo dope, which is fentanyl mixed with uh, benzos. So, you know, and unfortunately, what we're seeing is due to the scheduling of fentanyl being schedule one, we're seeing a lot of our, um, our drug dealers on the streets who are going to jail. Well, who are they? They are usually minorities. They're marginalized um, individuals within our communities. So I'm not trying to say that they shouldn't, you know, serve time or, you know, see any consequences. But as of right now, there's not enough that's being done, and you know, not enough awareness that's being done as well when it comes to fentanyl. What we're doing is we're doing the same thing same exact thing we do we did with crack cocaine and powder cocaine um so we have a lot to do when it comes to fentanyl and also understanding it but you know also trying to ring in these um cartels as well we all know that we had this conversation dating back to trump administration with china saying you know hey please get your fentanyl products under control 
But obviously that's not working either. And now, you know, through China, it makes its way down to Mexico through the Mexican cartels. Um, and that's just been, that's been the way, I guess, the, the drug uh, scene, if you will, for the U.S. for a while, that a lot of these drugs are coming from Mexico. So that being said, you know, I think that legislation-wise, we should be looking at being more proactive um, and being out on the street with individuals, having more boots on the ground, and just having more preventative measures when it comes to saving people's lives and being where they are. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera, you just talked about it. Part of the problem when we're dealing with drugs is there's no way to disentangle it from everything else. There's the inherent problems in the criminal justice system. There's an addiction part to it, of course, which is complicated even under the best of circumstances, dealing with people that have an addiction problem. Then you start talking about international politics. Then you start talking about Mexico. Now you got to deal with the immigration thing, which gets lumped into it, which is mostly unfairly because most of this stuff actually comes through legitimate ports of entry by contraband, not by illegal immigration. But all these things start winding up in a ball. What's the best way to talk about it in a productive way then to cut through that and start pulling some strings out where we can actually do it? Is it taking the human face of it? Is it the policy face of it? Is it the criminal aspect of it? Because everybody seems to just want to take one piece or the other and we don't get the full picture on it. We don't get anywhere. How do we start cutting through the noise on this, on how we're discussing it in media and social media and the news media? I think you make a great point because it needs a human face. You know, quite often it's so easy for us to turn on the television and hear about individuals who are abusing drugs and just think that, well, that's not me. That can never be me. I don't know anyone utilizing drugs. I don't. So, you know, and I, I think that says a lot because if you don't, you're not associated with anyone or if you don't utilize drugs, which I'm hoping that your listeners, some of them do, especially with fentanyl, then you're not really having your boots on the ground and understanding the problem in itself. Like just really getting to the heart of the problem, you know, looking at your users, looking at your dealers and just getting a real, a really good grasp on all these moving parts, right? So I think that it's going to take a lot of humanizing when it comes to drug addiction to really understand what's going on. But then also there needs to be a lot more understanding when it comes to law enforcement within their communities. Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera. This is the problem right here, though. We To bring up the 94 crime bill again, this is my opinion. You can go look it up on YouTube. Look at what then-Senator Joe Biden said. Look at what Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, said. Look at what the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate said. It, this isn't even a political thing. Just look at the language they used at the crime bill back in 94 at this stuff. It's all they, these drugs make people subhuman. They make them dangerous. These are animal. I mean, this stuff's all out there. They dehumanize these folks and it scares people. We're doing it again because that sells politically. You scare people. You let people think that they're in danger because of the drugs and they are a problem. But how do we deal with that portion of it? Because that's not going to go away because it's good politics to scare people into action and to do things. That's just human nature and the fact of it. At the same time, yes, this causes dangerous things and it causes violent crimes. But at the same time, it's a people problem that has a people answer to it. Otherwise, you just end up perpetuating the problem. I don't have a good answer for that, but I know we need to talk about it that way to get to whatever the answer is going to be. Am I wrong there? No, you're not. But I think, you know, going back to how can we change that mindset, I think we could just even start with evidence-based practices and just really having scientists and counselors and psychologists 
uh, policymakers, uh, you know, individuals of the communities being on these types of boards, you know, consulting um, our politicians about, hey, this is what we need, this is what's going on, um, instead of pushing rhetoric and instead of pushing their own agenda. But, you know, that's what our politics are here in the U.S. Yeah. And but the thing about it is, yes, these people are criminals and they do bad, violent things, but those don't happen in a vacuum. Those are little shockwave bombs in families and communities, especially, you know, you're talking about the opioid crisis and fentanyl. A lot of that that's worse in rural areas. So you talk about one family being destroyed. Well, if you're in a small town, four or five families that have this issue, you're talking about a major impact. These things have ripple effects. It overruns the healthcare system. It overruns the judiciary system. It overruns the civic function system. How do we get folks to understand that, no, this is not something where you just remove the bad people from society? You have to actually get these people back functioning in society, not just for them, but for their families and their communities as well. There's bomb radiuses when these things go off, like addiction, like crime, like drug use. I don't think we talk about it in that manner enough instead of just the fear mongering like, oh, well, it's violent crime. Let's just make it go away so we get the votes. No, because you're not going to solve the problem. Right. And, you know, I whenever you start talking about bombs and waves, like, because it can take out a whole community, I immediately thought about the Hulu show, Dote, because it started out in a very small community. That was a great, 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 great uh, TV show. But, you know, unfortunately that was that was the result of money and greed and when you think about it you know it takes a lot for our voices to be heard within communities it takes a lot for our voices to be heard within cities but the only way that our voices can be heard to and I hate to you know sound like a broken record about this but it is to vote it is to know you know who your senators are who your representatives are you know who's actually supporting your community who's not you know supporting your community so again I think it's really important that, you know, we make sure that we are putting the pe right people in the offices who know their communities, who know their cities, and actually care about the people within them. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Rivera, you also have a piece out in uh, USA Today talking about policing, traffic stops, police violence. I, I just want to cut through the noise and get to the base of this. We have a base alloy for some of the problems in policing in America. And that base alloy that folks don't want to talk about is policing is now big business and policing is revenue and policing is you're not just protecting and serving, but you're also expected to bring in income to your municipality and city. That drives traffic stops, that drives interactions with the public that they otherwise would not be having, that puts people on edge, and we've got the data and the science now that's going to increase incidences of police violence against the civilian population, good, bad, justified, unjustified, whatever. It just is statistically that's going to happen. Is there any way to break out of the cycle of for-profit policing that is driving some of this? And I know a lot of people are going to get mad and say, oh, that's really harsh, but no, the fine system in the court system, the the fine system in the policing, this is a problem and it's driving a lot of the other problems and folks just are not talking about it correctly. Exactly. You know, and I, you know, I'm very, very happy about the response from this piece. I've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, people reaching out to me, some being from organizations such as UN50. Uh, the founder of BJ Council reached out to me because she actually works with um, and gives trainings to the community as well as police officers when it comes to how to interact with one another. 
I've also had um, someone reach out to me from the best highway safety practices in Nevada to speak with me as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is not about defunding police. So I just want to put that out there right now. What this article is saying is we're not trying to defund the police. What we're trying to do is save lives and make it more safe for police officers as well as citizens. Because you have to think about it. Whenever you're being pulled over by an officer, they don't know you. They may not know you're an outstanding citizen. They may not know that you know you have a loving family and support. It's really important that we make sure that we're keeping the idea in our heads that we need a foundation of trust between the, the motorist as well as the police officer. And as of right now, given the climate, we're not seeing that. From Ness Moreno Rivera, I find back the blue and I find defund the police to be two sides of the same coin of the same problem. You can't lump it all together. If you support police, which I do, we need good police, you have to hold them accountable. You also have to give them achievable goals and tools to do their job properly. And I find both of those slogans defeat that purpose. I want them to have attainable goals, protecting and serving the community. I want them to have the tools to do that. But then I think we should also hold them accountable that they do that. How do we turn down the noise from those two polar extremes? Because that drives the narrative and then nothing gets done. And frankly, the police get stuck in the middle, to be fair to them. Um, and they get in an impossible position. How do we change that narrative and that discussion? Because, look, policing does require funding. We were talking about it a little bit. Let's be adults here. It does require funding, but we want it to go to certain things like properly trained police, vetting good police, getting more good people into the police force. Weeding out the bad folks means you got to have more good folks. How do we talk about that in a more productive way, do you think? Because you've seen the same data. Again, it's humanizing. Yes, funding is very, very important for the police officers, but it shouldn't come at the cost of us motorists, um, especially when looking at quotas. You know, quotas can definitely make police officers, you know, make traffic stops that are unnecessary and thus making individuals and themselves more prone to potential violent acts that wouldn't be there in the first place. And again, because given the climate between police and the public right now, there really isn't that foundation of respect and understanding. And at the end of the day, quotas are not a good system for having to collect funding. Uh, Finesse Moreno Rivera. The other part of this, we talked before about how these things get really tentacly and go into cross streams and this sort of thing. When you start dealing with policing, there's no way to get around things like class and race. We don't seem to be able to have a good way of talking about things like class and race generally. But then when you start putting criminality around it, it gets really bad trying to talk about it. What do we do with this? I don't know. I Look, I work hard trying to do it, and I still can't figure out how to do it sometimes. People smarter than me have wrote you know, voluminous books. People teach whole courses on this stuff. How do we talk about the fact that, look, we just need to be adults. You police rurally differently. You have to police inner cities differently. You have to police suburbs differently. And all those different classes and races and demographics and groups of people react differently. We seem to want to just act like policing is this one size fits all, and it's not. And it seems like we've lost this community aspect to policing. And frankly, we've lost this community aspect to the police work for us as a community. Where do we start getting that back some? That old protect and serve thing, I know it's almost a, you know, kind of a joking Andy Griffith thing, but look, we used to call them peace officers for a reason. They kept the peace. I feel like we've lost that with our perception and with the main mission of the police force in too many cases. Yeah, it, racial profiling is, it's out there and we all know it is. It's, been it's a human articles. nature problem. People push back against the buzzword on it. And I understand you can go too far with it. It's just grained into your human nature. You're fighting a human nature problem and a human failing. So you have to acknowledge that, yes, this is an issue. Now there's degrees to it, obviously, but it's a human nature problem. So it's silly to act like it's not existing, right? Right. No, because no one wants to be seen in a bad light. But, you know, given all those circumstances, that's the reason why I'm happy that there are some states that have taken back control and trying to really balance out the officer's natural bias. We all have natural bias or perceptions. We're really just taking out 
they're the uh, subjectivity of it all. So, you know, places such as Philadelphia, Los Angeles, um, they have, you know, already enacted legislation to um, decrease the amount of unnecessary stops for minimal um, charges, such as for taillights being out. There's also been Chicago, who has even enacted legislation looking at foot pursuits. Um, and also not only that, but car pursuits. And Washington as well. Now, that's not to say, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, this could have backlash because it does. For example, I know that Washington had mentioned once they had enacted their new legislation for um, giving up on minor uh, traffic stops for minor violations, they saw an uptick of individuals who just would not pull over. They would not pull over. And so there was this backlash of, well, you know, they're criminals, they're getting away, they should be stopped. But a caveat should be that I don't think that it's okay for just a car to, you know, commence a chase with a police officer whatsoever. But that officer, like you said, is here to protect and serve the community. And he needs to, he or she needs to keep that in mind. So really, you know, the only time that a, a speed chase or any type of chase should be um, pursued would be under you know, extreme circumstances such as violent crime, such as a murder or a rape or a kidnapping. So I would really like to think that we're kind of coming a little bit further, especially when you're looking at states, about 20 states, over 20 states, who've also um, gotten rid of their quotas for police officers, just to try to make it you know, safer for the motorists as well as um, officers themselves. But, you know, overall, I think that again, the officers and motorists need to keep in mind about where they're coming from um, whenever they're, whenever they are being stopped. And like you said, you know, there's different standards for whether you're rural or you're inner, but it's important for everyone to still be on some, some type of, you know, same page. I actually went out to lunch with a friend not too long ago. She's a professor and worked at a, as an analyst with me. And I said, you know, what do you do when you get pulled over? And she said, oh, I was taught just to take my keys out of the ignition, put them on the dashboard, keep both my hands on the, on the wheel. And I thought to myself, I've never done that before in my entire life. And if something so small like that can be a trigger between the motorist as well as an officer. So, you know, at some point we need to, we need to just get on the same page. And motorists definitely need to start learning um, their rights um, and also the law as well. Finesse Marina Rivera, you just talked about it. So let's just do this to kind of wrap up this conversation of what's some low hanging fruit. We talked about that policy wise, but what's some low hanging fruit we can do to start making this stuff better? Is it better awareness? Like I do that. I, I, I've got driving age children. I tell them all the time, like, look, cop comes up, both hands on the wheel and keep them there unless they tell you to do anything else. And when you go to do something else, tell them what you're doing. Like if you go to reach for them, like I'm going to go reach for this. Just simple stuff. But what's some of the things we can do to kind of turn this down? Because, look, this is give and take. The police have to do some reforms. The public needs to do some reforming, too. What's some of the real easy stuff? Is it going to a community police board meeting or whatever your uh, area might have? Is it better educating yourself? Is it meeting with your police? Is it talking to your politicians? Give us something, you know, not easy, but attainable goals that folks can work on here instead of us just yelling at each other about it on social media. The easiest obtainable goal that I thought of, because I remember, well, I would like to think that I remember, you know, whenever I went to driving school to get my permit, I do not recall not one portion of that class, however long it was, including what to do when stopped by an officer or your rights when being stopped by an officer. I think that that's very important. That is an easy, that is an easy pamphlet that can be handed out you know, as soon as you have your young drivers out there on the road, just, just hand it out. Easy, very easy for them to know what to do. So everyone is on the same page as motorists. It's also very easy for an officer just 
just to have standardization in some way as well, just to say, hi, you know, how are you doing? You're speeding. My camera is on or the dash cam is on. You know, in my article, I state that some, like over 70% of the cases, there is no, there is no camera, body-worn camera on or dash cam on. That's dangerous for not only the motorist, but also the officer himself. So I think it's really important that, you know, the officer is, you know, showing some type of decorum, showing his professionalism as soon as he walks up to the door. Uh, uh, my personal experience, unfortunately, you know, I have never met a Virginia state trooper that wasn't trained exactly the same. I, every single time, which I haven't been pulled over that many times in Virginia, but I can, you can definitely tell that they're trained exactly the same way and treat everyone exactly the same way. And I've talked to other individuals as well about the Virginia uh, state troopers um, too. So, you know, these are just small things that can, you know, help. And the officers need to be trained as well when it comes to you know, the motorists. Um, I found it to be disturbing that, you know, in the article that I wrote, that, you know, like a little over half of the motorists were, you know, under the influence of drugs, alcohol, uh, or were, were clearly having a mental health issue at the time of being pulled over. And that, you know, really does make it the situation even dicier as well. So, you know, I think that at the very least, officers need to be trained more when it comes to mental illnesses, those who are intoxicated or on drugs. And, you know, for those individuals who are saying, well, that's good. That's a good thing they got pulled over. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree. Um, but again, if they're being pulled over, then, you know, different measures need to be taken for this individual and be considered when, you know, making sure everyone is safe. Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera. She's a criminal uh, forensic psychologist and criminologist. She's got all those fancy titles, but she does such great work on this stuff. We've got two different pieces we're working off of. We're going to link to both of them, one in Counterpunch, one in USA Today. And yes, we're going to make you a regular because you're really, really sharp on this stuff, and we really appreciate your time. But until we get you back, my friend, let folks know where they can keep up with you, how they can follow you, and what you got going on until we see you on Hertel again. Absolutely. So I can be found on Twitter at Finesse Marino. And as well as on my LinkedIn, uh, Finesse Marino Rivera. And hopefully my next piece will be coming out soon. Yep. She's another of our great young voices contributors. Really sharp. Make sure you're reading all her stuff. Good, fresh insight and perspective on this. Look, she's worked with the FBI, D.C. police, all kinds of folks. She knows what she's talking about. We're going to keep asking her questions. And she'll explain it so well. Even I understand it. So, Finesse, thank you so much for the time, my friend. Really appreciate you. Thanks, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's back again, a friend of ours. He's a UNC Chapel Hill grad, but for the purposes of this conversation, we are not going to hold that against him. Uh, we usually talk uh, environmental kind of stuff with him, but we're thrilled to have him back. We're going to talk a little bit about online things. Elijah Gullick, great to see you again, my friend. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Hanging in there. Um, yeah. I love this piece. I told you when we were prepping it, uh, you wrote in free the people about, um, online stuff. Let me, let me go at you with this though. I kind of recoil when people start talking about online and big tech and things like this. And then they go straight to civil liberties. Cause that almost feels like a big jump. You know what I mean? Like, well, civil liberties is, you know, the civil rights movement and equal protections and equality like that. But then when I calm down and I just think about it for a second, I'm also one of those guys who advocate that the internet is one of the greatest tools of freedom we've ever had. 
And I believe that. I think it's one of the most important tools for freedom that we've ever developed as humans. So if I really believe that and I'm consistent with that, then, yeah, you kind of got to make that leap, don't you, in some ways? I definitely believe that. And I think it's more true than ever when so much of our political discourse and frankly, so many of our like social connections are happening increasingly online. Um, and a lot of people, for example, don't even engage in politics outside of the internet. You know, there's a whole swath of people who are unanonymous or have anonymous accounts or are too maybe nervous to really get engaged at like the more public political level. So they use the internet as a really important platform for having a much more uh, expansive number of people who can like contribute their voices. Yeah. And I'm one of them because like, look, I talk, you know, cause I do this show, I do other things. I talk a lot of politics online. I almost never talk politics at home in my real life, yeah. especially with my family and in my home when I'm just, we, we almost never talk politics. It's, it's not necessarily a rule. It's just the way I do it. That's segmented. I, that's what I do for work and I don't do it there. Uh, of course, other people do it the other way. But then again, I don't have Facebook. So because I'm smart and that's like I say, like I have family and friends and I want to keep loving them. So I'm not going to have Facebook here. That's exactly where you get into some of this, though, is because, you know, Facebook has kind of its own culture. Twitter has its own culture. Instagram has a little bit of its own culture. This isn't just big tech. This isn't just social media. We use those big words. This is a very fragmented, balkanized kind of thing. But more and more of our public sphere, more and more of our dialogue, you just talked about it, more and more of our politics and media and interactions are going through these mediums. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's why, as I I taught, so the center of my piece is around the Department of Homeland Security's uh, misinformation, disinformation campaigns. And the reality is, if it didn't matter, DHS wouldn't care. They wouldn't be doing this program at all. So the fact they're even doing it I think it's pretty indicative of where we're at and like why it matters how that, and the stakes that are involved. If they view it as for in their sort of from their perspective as a real threat to democracy and truth. Yeah, Elijah Gullett joining us. Here's the background on this. What happened was back during COVID, people filed uh, reporters doing their job, by the way, filed a whole bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests. Those usually take time. Of course, especially during something like a crisis, there's time sensitive things. So you have to wait until certain things before it's released. But you are entitled as an American citizen and journalist uses Freedom of Information Act reports. So they got all this stuff from DHS from the last three years or so from these Freedom of Information. Now, to be fair to the government, some of this got way blown out of proportion because here's what happens. And you can speak to this because you went through it for the piece. By the way, there's a lot of links in your piece. Make sure you read all that for yourself. That tells me it's a good piece. I love when it's got a lot of stuff I can read and not. Part of what happens with this information, and to be fair to the government, this is why it's so hard to deal with this. Something like COVID is something hits the internet. It's bad and it's wrong and everybody knows it's wrong. But then five days later, it kind of fixes itself because the ecosystem is like, well, no, that's wrong. And it comes all the way back around. Mm-hmm. Well, government regulation doesn't work that fast. So by the time they get around to regulating misinformation, misinformation is already kind of taking care of itself. That's kind of the core problem that they're dealing with. The government does not, to be fair to the government, I'm going to bash them here in a minute, but to be fair to them, they don't really have a tool to deal with something like that, do they? So they end up going to the sledgehammer regulation. Is that a good way to kind of encapsulate the problem here? I actually, I think that's a great way to talk about this. Um, You know, the nuances and particularities of online speech are just not necessarily a great match for government uh, regulation. They're just not going to have the precision and the nuance and the context to really do this well. Yeah, I think so as well. Now, that's where you start getting into messier areas. Is it malfeasance? Is it bias? Is it the government putting their thumbs on the scale? I think COVID's almost a bad example to use for this because nobody handled this really well. But you do have a public health crisis. So the government's going, oh, we have to fix this because people are dying. The problem, of course, is everybody, (laughs) you know, if you can do it in emergency, you can do it the rest of the time. How did it hit you when you started looking at this? Because, again, the government has a public health role. They need to get information out. Where do you put your line when you start looking through this? Because, again, there's a lot of gray area here. Where does this go from just the machinations of government to, oh, this is a problem that needs to be fixed and addressed? Yeah, I think... For me, when I was looking through the report, especially in regards to the stuff around COVID misinformation, I very much framed it around 
experience, you know, the early days of COVID when there was a lot changing all the time. And so there were honestly sometimes mixed or conflicting reports coming from, uh, you know, federal public health officials. And this was not necessarily their fault. You know, there were still, it was very early in the days of the pandemic. Uh, I generally try not to fault people for how they respond in the initial days because we really didn't know anything. But for me, that kind of, for me, it was like difficult to square having this really strong, strict regulation alongside the evolving information that we were gathering, right? And part of that information gathering was happening through uh, organic discourses online of people bringing in different types of experts who maybe did disagree with the CDC, for example, and maybe they were wrong about some stuff, but it was still important to have those voices there. And on top of that, I think this kind of really, um, really harsh regulation only increases suspicion of public health officials and of the uh, generally accepted consensus line on things like vaccines and uh, mask wearing and lockdowns and all that, uh, everything that happened, right? Like even from the public health officials perspective, they should be weary of using these really harsh tactics because it only breeds further suspicion and people who are prone to be suspicious about these agencies. Elijah Gallat joining us. Let's go to the big tech section of this because big tech's relationship with government is really the core of this. It's not just people yelling online about bias and whatever. The government and big tech are going to have to have a relationship. Okay. What's that relationship going to be? That's the heart of this. You get into this in your piece and you use Facebook, previous Meta. I can't say Meta with a straight face, but Facebook and Meta, you use them as the example here where we have seen for the better part of a couple of years now, the, the Facebook meta people go up, they sit before these hearings and they talk about regulation. They know that some kind of regulation is coming. Let's have a grown folk talk here real quick. They're trying to get ahead of it so that they get a say in the regulation so that the regulation is favorable to them. That's the background of all this. So now when you go and look at the information you're looking at in these freedom of information releases is, okay, is it, appropriate for somebody who is trying to get themselves regulated to their benefit to have a say in the regulation. And then when you put that with this information is where you start getting into, wait a minute, the government and big tech do not need to be cozy partners in this. Yes, tech needs to check with the government on things like, hey, are we in compliance here? Is this information accurate? That's one thing. But they don't need to be having a friendship relationship of like, Oh, well, you don't really, here's Facebook. This is simplified, but Facebook is going to Congress going, you don't really understand this, but we understand it really well. So we will write this regulation for you. And that's where this really people go, wait a minute, this isn't okay. This is where there can be some real malfeasance and where the worst parts of government like cronyism and things like that can really start to play. Yeah. And this is, this part of my piece was really the hardest part for me to write out clearly. Um, you know, just for some background on my own thought processes when I was working on this was, I think the situation doesn't fit super well into a lot of our traditional theories of how like, you know, uh, government versus business or the private sector work, right? And I think there were a lot of um, not bad analyses out there that came out after briefly out of the support, but I think they were missing things. They wanted to kind of shove it into either, this is an issue of protecting the free market or an issue of, um, for example, from some, and I mentioned them in the piece, some uh, right-wing commentators using this as evidence that there's some like broader collusion or regime almost trying to suppress their type of speech, for example. And I wanted to really draw that out and show how complicated the relationship is and how this isn't exactly a friendship. They're not necessarily, the two parties aren't necessarily at war with one another, right? Uh, I was trying to per perceive it as like, as you said, this kind of complex relationship that regulation breeds, uh, that cronyism breeds. It breeds bad incentives that people act on uh, for their own self-interest. 
Yeah, and you take it to the angle of we should be skeptical of not just the big government and we shouldn't be just skeptical of big tech. We need to be skeptical of the increasing regulations of the social media companies in general for that very reason. Um, it's a good line in your piece. I'll just say it to you for the point purposes of discussion. But you say we ought to rein in executive powers and provide more leeway to private companies to compete against themselves to determine the best content moderation society. The reason people come back from that is because that's messy. That's ugly. That's not neat. That takes, we're seeing it with Twitter and Elon Musk right now. It's messy. It's not neat and clean and people get uncomfortable. However, any other relationship in your life, if you have an interpersonal relationship, you know, working those things out or not neat and clean and messy. If we go, well, that's just icky and I don't want to deal with it. Let the government deal with it. That's not only going to breed all the problems we just talked about. It's also kind of an abrogation of our responsibilities of citizens. It's like, hey, we can't complain about big, bad regulation if we just go, well, I don't care. Just make it go away so I don't have to hear about it. Do you see that as kind of a prevailing attitude with some of this? Because I start seeing that creeping, and then that's where you start losing some of your freedoms is that kind of apathy. Yeah, I think people really, like, it is really hard for people to separate their own personal feelings and opinions about other people's viewpoints or things that they you know, for example, might consider terrible and things I consider terrible, right? There's plenty of stuff on the internet I think is awful. And in some perfect world where the government worked the way I wished it did, I would, you know, happily have them ban some things, right? But the reality is we live in a very complex world where there's a lot of unintended consequences of government interference. And we can't make policy based on our views of what we wish the government was like, or what we wish society was like, or how we wish people were. We have to uh, create policies based on what we know is true, based on the fact that people are messy and they don't necessarily respond to these type forms of speech suppression or bans with, you know, uh, just simply changing their viewpoints or stop talking about them. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to find ways to get around that. And also in the case of these major corporations, when they get into this, you know, the on one hand, policymakers might want to hope that if they increase these regulations, that it's going to be an genuine check on the powers of these really large social media companies. But in fact, it is oftentimes, as I mentioned the piece with Facebook, for example, an opportunity for them to get ahead of the rest of the game, get ahead of their, their own competitors to help shape those policies in their favor um, in ways that may disadvantage their competition. Yeah, Elijah Gallup. Let's wrap it up talking about it this way, though. Um, we have to have accountable government. The only way we have accountable government is to have information about what our government's doing. You had a list of things in here you talked about that was um, at issue with this particular document dump. Um, Russian interference in elections. They interfere. They try to interfere in every election. Let's all be adults here. But, you know, what does that entail? Because that, again, that's a messy, tough conversation. Uh, COVID-19 we know about. Biden's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. I know that was a personal one with me. I was upset with that. I'd like to know more about the decision-making process there. Things like um, when the government gets involved with racial unrest, all these sorts of things. We know we know from history, the civil rights movement, there's a lot of stuff that was buried and not covered. When we have a Freedom of Information Act for a couple of years from now, what do you think we could do so that the next time we do this, it looks a little better or it looks a little more accountable? What can folks do in their conversations, either online or just interpersonal, to kind of put the ball forward on government accountability and go, look, this information is vital for us to know what our government is doing, and the government can't be colluding with these big tech companies. There has to be some sunlight here for accountability to be able to stay in play. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is congressional checks on administrative and executive powers here. That's going to be the first and foremost thing is Congress doing its job, one of its core jobs, which is to actually do legislating and not just hand it off to our executives and unelected bureaucrats in places like the DHS. Um, this will involve putting limits on these types of rules and like making sure there's at least some oversight when they're trying to put in, implement these new rules around uh, content moderation or their interactions with these big tech, tech companies. On top of that, I actually think there's something each of us just regular folks should be doing, even if we're not policymakers, right? I think a return and a recognition of the importance of civil society and civilness and civility in our uh, public discourse matters a lot. And that even when you disagree, it is not necessarily an invitation 
for you to call on the government to use force to stop someone from doing what they're what someone's doing even if you think it's despicable speech right we all have an obligation to understand those distinctions and draw those lines and ensure that you know we can continue to live in a free society both at the legal level and at a broader more cultural level i gotta tell you elijah when the best answer you can give me is i think congress is going to be our best option i get nervous <laughs> um but it, it, i'm being a little facetious the fact of the matter is most of the problems in our government right now is our dysfunctional Congress because it all revolves around them because they're not they don't only make laws, but they also have the power of the purse. And they are also supposed to have oversight over the other branches of government. And pretty much all our major problems come from a dysfunctional Congress. So you are not wrong, sir. You have a good point there. Elijah Gallet, this is an excellent piece. There's a lot in here. There's a couple of things I took contention with. We threw you some hard questions. You handled them well. Make sure you read the entire piece. We're going to link to the whole thing, freethepeople.org. A lot of links in here. There's a lot of details in here and nuances you're going to need to work for. Do your homework, folks. Elijah, really appreciate the time. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on. This is what, your third time on here? We're getting to be a regular. We like talking to you. Let folks know where they can find you and keep up with you until they see you on Hertel again. Yep, you can find me at Market Urbanist with an S at the end on Twitter. I also have a Substack where I occasionally post usually things relating to urban policy issues, but a range of other topics, including book reviews at youngurbanist.substack.com. That's young with a U instead of an O-U. So. Yeah, I got to be all fancy like that. I uh, already talked to him, too. Going to talk some more environmental and conservation stuff. He does really good work in that realm. Uh, Elijah Gallet, always enjoy talking, sir. Appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.